And it was a special blessing it was last week for us to enjoy an entire worship service together, being reminded of the wonderful privilege that we have as God's people, as Christ's church, uh, to care for the children uh, among us. It's, it's startling to say it, but uh, we live in a society that hates children. Uh, voluntary childlessness, the Holocaust of human abortion, Widespread divorce that leaves children without a mother or a father or both. The transgender cult that would mutilate and sterilize children in the name of self-expression. And the woke mob that wants to leverage the public school system to groom children into sexual deviance or to cultivate grievances and bitterness in them that or by convincing them that they're oppressed by invisible systems that they can't escape. We live in a society that hates children. But as we heard so faithfully last week, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a society that loves children. If there is any place on the planet where children should be loved and welcomed and served and taught and protected and cared for, It is the church. And why is that? What makes us ready to love and serve the children uh, of our church the way that we were encouraged to do last week? Well, certainly children are precious to us because they are precious to Christ, our Savior and King. As we heard, we follow the one who, when others around him found children, a nuisance, Mark 10, 14 says he was indignant with those people. And said, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He was eager to take the children in his arms and bless them. Certainly, it's because Scripture tells us that the children are a gift of God, that they are a precious stewardship entrusted to us by God, that we might train them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that we might raise them as disciples of Jesus Christ. But even more than that, we love the children because Almighty God has made us His children. And He has done that by virtue of a saving blessing that we don't often spend much time thinking about, but a blessing which the best of theologians have described as the highest privilege that the gospel offers, the apex of grace and privilege. Something that staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love. And that doctrine that I'm speaking of is our adoption into the family of God. What grounds the call to love and serve the children of our church? What makes us ready to serve in nursery and Sunday school and adventure club and VBS and and even to just be good neighbors and disciplers to the children among us? Well, it is that the living God has made us nobodies, outcasts, sinners. He's made us his children by adopting us into his family. Scripture casts our very salvation in the language of God the Father adopting spiritual orphans, even spiritual slaves into his own family, bringing us into his own household to be his sons and daughters. Romans 8.15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And in fact, every facet of our salvation is cast in terms of our adoption. The concept is present throughout all the phases of our redemption. First, in the plan of redemption, before time began, in the eternal counsel of the Trinity, God the Father is said, Ephesians 1.4, to have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then in the next verse, Ephesians 1.5 says, he, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So from eternity past, God the Father never contemplated his elect, those whom he would redeem unto unto salvation. He never contemplated us apart from the reality of our adoption. The very reason for his eternal choice of us is that he might make us his own sons and daughters. And then secondly, the accomplishment of our redemption is spoken of with respect to adoption. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, the atoning work of Christ, our substitute, as he paid the the ransom price of our redemption on the cross, was carried out with the purpose that his people would receive the adoption as sons. Jesus died to make us sons and daughters of God. Then in Hebrews 2.10, the author characterizes Christ's atoning mission in precisely that way, as bringing many sons to glory. See, Jesus is not just forgiving guilty criminals, though that would be enough. He's bringing many adopted sons along to their eternal inheritance into the glory of heaven. And then not only the plan of redemption and not only the accomplishment of redemption, but even in the application of our redemption, Scripture speaks in terms of adoption. This is what our conversion was. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That, that language of the right to become children is legal language. And those who get the legal right to become children are adopted children. John is saying that all who receive Christ in faith become the adopted children of God. That all who believe in Jesus are granted an irreversible legal status as his sons and daughters. And God never disowns any of his children. It would bring reproach upon his saving fatherhood if that were to happen. Once Christ gives us that right to become children of God, we never lose it. And then not only at conversion, but all throughout our progressive sanctification, we live in the world as sons and daughters of our Father. We call out to Him as our Father in prayer, our Father who is in heaven. We cry to him in our need, Abba, Father, and approach the throne of grace with confidence that the sovereign Lord of all is our heavenly Father, eager to hear our requests and bless us from his bounty. He delights to give good gifts to his children. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
And as one preacher said, an open throne of grace is worth more than anything in the world. And then we imitate him as his children, as Luke calls us in Luke 6.35, to love our enemies so that we would be sons of the Most High. Live this way and so be sons. Live in such a way that reflects the character of your own father. Ephesians 2.19 says we live in the fellowship of God's household. And so we go through life bound to one another, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the same family. And then even the prospect of our glorification in Romans 8.23 is described as our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So even the transformation of our bodies to free us from the very presence of sin itself is described as our adoption. What unsearchable riches there are in this sacred truth of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And in our time together this morning, I want to mine out some of these riches for you with the hope of ravishing your heart with this most excellent of privileges that you enjoy in Christ as the people of the Lord's house. But also with the hope of motivating you to serve as you have been called to serve. I want you to be thrilled by the grace that you have been shown in the gospel of your adoption and then out of that gospel-driven foundation, I want, you to, I want to stir you to bend that grace out to others which you have been shown by God. And to do that, we'll look to several texts of Scripture and observe four contrasts. Four contrasts between our lives before and after our adoption into the family of God. That we might worship God for the great privileges of our adoption And that we might extend the grace of adoption that we have been shown to others in lives of devoted service to Christ and his people, even the littlest of his people. And that first contrast is that we have gone from orphans to sons, from orphans to sons, outside of Christ in our natural state as human beings under the curse of sin, we were spiritual orphans. We had no one to look after our spiritual well-being. We had no provision for our spiritual needs. We had no protection from spiritual danger. We had no hope, no prospects, no future aside from what Hebrews 10 calls a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Spiritually speaking, outside of Christ, every last one of us, no matter what our heritage, no matter what our family line, were orphans. But that's not to say that we had no father. Turn with me to John chapter 8. In John 8, Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees. They're boasting that they are the children of Abraham, that Abraham is their father, and so they are the proper heirs to the promises of God's covenant with Abraham. But in John 8, 44, Jesus tells them who their real father is. He says, you 
are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. You see, sinners like you and me, if we are not united to Christ by faith, we are not the children of God, simply by virtue of being human. Sometimes you hear people speak that way. Well, we're all God's children. No. John 8 teaches us that apart from a vital union to Christ by faith alone, the devil is your father. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. See, there are and there have only ever been two families of people on this entire planet throughout the history of the world. There is the family of God and there is the family of the devil. And if your life, John says, is not characterized by the practice of righteousness, which is the fruit or the evidence of a life united to Christ by faith alone, you are a child of the devil. But that's not all. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul begins reminding the believers at Ephesus what their life was like before they trusted in Christ. Which means it's a good idea to be reminded from time to time. And he tells them, Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, of the spirit that is now working, listen, in the sons of disobedience. And Paul says, among them we too all formerly lived. We were, we were them. We were, it was us too. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, listen again, children of wrath, even as the rest. This is who we are by nature. Nothing has to happen to us for us to be sons of disobedience, for us to be children of wrath, for us to be of our father, the devil, spiritual orphans, with all the accompanying misery that comes with orphanhood. As Pastor John has put it, In his book, Slave, he says, We had no home but this world, no guardian but Satan, and no future but hell. But what has God done? He has looked upon us in the wretchedness of our sin, in the hopelessness of our spiritual orphanhood, and he has acted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to make children of wrath children of God. To make sons of disobedience, sons of the Holy Father. He has taken outsiders, outcasts, strangers, misfits, the natural sons and daughters of the great enemy of all righteousness. And he has adopted us. We have gone from orphans to sons. And this is just a staggering reality. You know, when you consider the blessings of your salvation, I imagine that you, like me, quickly think upon your justification. And rightly so. 
in justification, the record of our debt of sin is transferred from our account and is counted against Christ, who bears the guilt of our sins in his own body on the cross. And then the the perfect record of the righteousness of Christ is transferred from Christ's account and is imputed to us so that God treats us as if we had always obeyed in all the ways that Christ perfectly obeyed his Father. We stand in the courtroom of God before God the judge, sinful in ourselves, but declared righteous before the law because we lay hold of the perfect record of Christ's righteousness through faith alone, apart from any works that we have done or can do or will do. But our salvation is greater even than that. You see, it is one thing for a judge to pardon a guilty criminal because a sufficient penalty has been paid in that criminal's place. But it is another thing. It is abundant grace for that judge to step down from the bench, to walk over to the defendant's table, and then take that criminal into his own home. To provide for that criminal. To give him a seat at his own dinner table, night after night after night. To put his own name upon that criminal. Think of it. To give him the family name. This lowlife who had no name. To take him from the gutter. And to make him an heir of all his inheritance. Oh, Grace Church, do you know yourselves that way? That is what God has done for sinners. He does not merely justify us. He does not merely declare us righteous with respect to the law, though that would be enough. That would be unspeakably, overabundantly enough. But more than that, he adopts us into his own family to be his sons and daughters with all the protections and provisions and blessings and privileges that belong to being children of God. As one writer put it, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved by God the Father is even greater. And that's why when the Apostle John reflects on this reality, he bursts forth in an exclamation of praise in 1 John 3.1. He says, see or behold, stand back and observe. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God. John is astonished. John is flummoxed. He is ravished by the thought that we, traitors and rebels against the God of the universe, destined to perish in our sins and suffer eternal condemnation deservingly, should not only be forgiven of our sins, but then welcomed into his family as his sons and daughters to bear his name and to be given all the rights and privileges of his children, including the eternal inheritance of heaven. John thinks on that and he says, Behold what a love, the love of God, how rich and pure, all measureless and strong. What kind of love is this that we should be adopted into the family of God? Turn with me, would you, to Romans chapter 9. And even as I speak of these things, I'm aware at how, how 
failing I am to give adequate voice to this, how, how insufficient my own words are. And I pray that the Lord uses his word to communicate these things to your heart. But in Romans 9, starting in verse 23, Paul, he's, he's celebrating the unfathomable mercy of God and the salvation of the Gentiles. And he speaks about God's elect as those vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And that in, and that in itself was a shocking display of grace because Israel, in a sense, is the natural son of God, if we could speak that way. Uh, Exodus 4.22 says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Uh, in Romans 11, Paul will speak about how the Jews were the natural branches in the olive tree of covenant blessing and Gentiles are these wild branches that had to be grafted in. The Gentiles were not the people of God. Israel was the people of God. And that's precisely what Paul picks up on in Romans 9.25 as he quotes from the prophet Hosea. God says, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Can you take that in? You were once no people. That's what Deuteronomy 32, 21 calls the Gentiles. God says, I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. 1 Peter 2, 10, Peter says it plainly, for you once were not a people. You had nothing. You were disowned. You were detached. You had no one to call yours and you had no one to call you theirs. And I wonder if you can feel the shame and the pain of that. That's you and me. No people. All the other kids have families. One by one, their moms and dads come and pick them up and bring them home. But you have no one. That is who we were, spiritually speaking. But now, Peter says, 1 Peter 2.10, now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were nobody. You were orphans. The castaways, the throwaways, the broken toys. And yet now, in the very place where it was said to you, you are not my people, now you are called the sons of the living God. Now you're not just somebody's people. Once no people, now a people of someone. You're God's people. You are, you are the people who has the king of the ages for your father. Because he saw you helpless and strange and other and unwanted even enemies, and he has made you his own. And oh, what can you do but fall down at the feet of free grace and give your lives in praise and worship to such a love, to such a God of love? There's a second contrast. In adoption, we go from orphans to sons, but secondly, we go from enemies to brethren, from enemies 
to brethren. Before salvation, in our natural state of sin and unbelief, Scripture calls us enemies of God, enemies of Christ, Romans 5.10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh, which is to say the natural mind, the mind in its normal state coming out of the womb, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Colossians 1, 21, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. And Philippians 3, 18, calls people whose lives contradict their profession of faith in Christ enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, we weren't just helpless spiritual orphans, innocent victims of our circumstances, eager to receive blessing from a benefactor if only a benefactor would desire a relationship with us. No, that was not us. We were enemies of God. We were running away from our benefactor. We were slapping away the outstretched arm of mercy. We were spitting in the smiling face of grace as he offered us peace. There is no neutrality in unbelief, friends. We cannot pretend that man's natural state of unbelief and sin is simply some, well, that's good for you, you have your truth, I have my truth, alternative lifestyle. No. You are either a friend of God through faith alone in Christ alone, or you are an enemy of God, hostile to Christ. And that is what each and every one of us was. But now, through this grace gift of adoption, we, who were enemies of Jesus, can you think of it? Now have the unspeakable privilege of calling him brother, of being called his brothers and sisters. We read in that glorious text, Romans 8, 29, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So you see, all whom God has chosen to save, he has also chosen to sanctify, to conform us into the image of holiness that exists in the natural Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But for what purpose? So that, become conformed into the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many what? Brethren. You see, the Father bestows the grace of adoption upon sinners, indeed, in order to magnify his own mercy and multiply his own honor in the proliferation of sons and daughters for himself. But that is not the only reason. The Father also adopts sinners in order to glorify his Son in the proliferation of brothers and sisters, of which he will stand honored as firstborn, as preeminent, Adoption glorifies Christ by turning enemies of the cross of Christ into a whole host of brothers and sisters that look like Jesus, that reflect the glory of the Son, who is himself the image of the invisible God. Son, these enemies would raise their arms against you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make them children so they all look just like you. And then turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we already spoke about how the author of Hebrews casts the atoning mission of Christ in terms of adoption in verse 10. 
he is said to have been bringing many sons to glory. But listen to the implications, starting in verse 11, of what it means for God to have made us his sons and for him to have become our father. Hebrews 2.11, For both he who sanctifies, that is Jesus in this context, and those who are sanctified, us believers, are all from one father. And that is just an outrageous thing to say. The, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. The, the, the eternal Son. He is the eternal Son, begotten of the Father before all ages, in the most incomprehensible of mysteries. God from God, light from light. God himself, and yet distinct from the Father, and not two gods, but one God. And the author of Hebrews is saying that that one, the eternal Son, and us, you and me, have the same Father. That is astounding if you have eyes to see. But then he goes on, middle of verse 11, you're all from one Father, for which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Can you believe those words? I can only think of a fraction of all the reasons that Jesus has to be ashamed to call me his brother. He sees my every deed. He knows my every thought. With the searching gaze of his omniscience, he sees how cold my heart can be. I'm ashamed of me. I wouldn't call me brother. But by some amazing stroke of grace, he is not ashamed of me. Because God has adopted me as his son. Because he has gone through the trouble of becoming my father, the eternal son. The one for whom and from whom are all things. The great high priest, holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That magnificent one is not ashamed to call me brother. He shows his wounded hands and names me. As his own. What an unspeakable privilege. Once your enemy. Now seated at your table. Jesus thank you. For redemption. Yes and father thank you. For adoption. That puts me at that table. The third contrast. Not only from orphans to sons. Not only from enemies to brethren. But also number three. From slavery to redemption. From slavery to redemption. Scripture testifies that all mankind is born into the bondage of slavery. That we are so beholden to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life that we are properly said to be enslaved to our sin. Romans 6.16, Paul says, Do you not know? That when you present yourselves as someone as to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. 
In the next verse, he says, you were slaves of sin. And then back in John 8, Jesus is discussing with the Pharisees. He says the same thing, John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Which one, which, which one of you commits sin? That is all of us, everyone. This is how God himself speaks about you, who you are by nature. You're enslaved to sin. Your mind, your heart, your will, every aspect of your being is held captive by sin. And if you die in that bondage, you will never be free from it. And so Hebrews 2.15 tells us that through the fear of death, those who labor under that bondage are subject to slavery all their lives. And so what has God done? He has sent Christ to redeem the slaves and turn them into sons. And we turn back to Galatians 4, where we started in our scripture reading this morning. Galatians 4 Again, in verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The father sent his son into the world to purchase his people out of the slave market of sin by the payment of the ransom price of his own blood. The son of man came to give his life a ransom for many. But you see the purpose of our redemption in that verse. It's not only that we should be free. It's not only that we should come out from under the bondage of sin and from the curse of the law. It is so that we might receive the adoption as sons. That we might be welcomed into the home of our Father. Now, adoption was popular in the Greco-Roman world, but it wasn't often an act of philanthropy on behalf of a child. It was actually for the benefit of a nobleman who didn't have any natural heir. And for that reason, people would very rarely adopt infants or young children. They would adopt those who were already mature, who would be able to learn as a sort of apprentice under this adoptive father, as the father prepared to die and leave his estate to his adopted son, who would then extend the man's line and carry on his name and his property. And so because adoption was designed ultimately for the benefit of the one adopting, it was very rare for a nobleman to adopt a slave. But this is what our Father does. Not out of His own poverty and need. He already has the greatest heir there is. He has His own natural Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His beloved Son in whom He is already well pleased. I am sure that if the Father needed anything, the Son could supply it. No, we needed a Father. Oh, we needed a Father. But He did not need sons. And yet out of the superabundance of his grace, he seeks us out. He then sends that treasured and beloved son of his to to be emptied of all the riches of heaven to assume our frail humanity so that he could pay the costly ransom price of our redemption so that he could adopt us as his own children. One preacher said, the legal documents of your adoption are signed with the blood of incarnate deity. Oh, the blood 
of Jesus that washes me. What words are there to praise such love? For one so amply supplied, in need of nothing, in order to make sons he didn't need, out of loathsome slaves who didn't deserve the beginning of such blessings. Oh, may God be praised for adoption. And then you're still in Galatians 4. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And listen to this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This adoption is Trinitarian. Not only has the Father sent the Son to redeem us, but now He sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father. And this is truly astounding. Turn back again to to Romans 8 and verse 15, just a few books to the left. Romans 8 and verse 15. There Paul writes, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so the Father not only gives his Son to redeem us, but he gives us his Spirit who actually dwells in our own hearts in the most intimate way and who enables us to come into the presence of the God of all holiness and to address God in this deeply felt sense of filial confidence and intimacy. That's what the term Abba signifies. It is a tender, affectionate term of endearment. It is a term of access. I don't care how busy I am. I don't care what it is that I'm doing. When I'm working from home upstairs and I hear feet coming down the hallway and bursting the door open to show me some picture that's been drawn or to tell me about something that's happened during the day, The self-discipline that's needed is to put myself back to work. It's not self-discipline to listen to the kid. I love hearing, Dad, look. Dad, here's what we did. And if I, a wicked, ridiculous person, can feel that way toward my own children, surely God, our Father, feels that way toward us, welcomes us, is happy to hear Abba. And do you know where the only other time this term appears in, a new t- in the New Testament? Aside from Galatians 4 and Romans 8, where we've just been? In Gethsemane. In Mark 14, 36. As Jesus contemplates the horrors of bearing the sins of the world, of drinking the cup of his Father's wrath against the sins of his people, the eternal God falls to the ground, overwhelmed. And he begins praying. The the tense of the verb implies over and over again, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is a cry of distress. This is the cry that a son utters when he's in fear or in pain. And his instinct is to call out to his father for protection. Dad, help! This is the loneliest, neediest moment of Jesus' life. It is the most impassioned, desperate prayer he's ever prayed. And he prays, Abba. 
And what Paul is teaching us in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 is that because the spirit of adoption has been sent into our hearts, we may address God with the same confident, childlike dependence that Jesus addresses the Father in the neediest moment of his life. Can you imagine the privilege? The Son had been born or had been in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. He is the eternal Son. He is the natural Son of God by eternal generation. Even during his earthly sojourn as a man, he is the sinless Son. And we, creatures of the dust, who in ourselves should be damned to hell for even thinking of taking the holy name of God upon our unclean lips, can address that God as our Father, as our Abba, with the same intimacy that the Holy Son of God does himself. I'm a son of the devil. I'm a son of disobedience. I am a child of wrath. I don't deserve to address God at all let alone to address him as Abba. And yet the Spirit gives us this confidence. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And oh, don't we need this testimony of the Spirit? You could imagine, couldn't you, that an adopted child might live with some doubt at times? Am I really part of this family? I know I'm not their biological child like the others. I know that by nature I don't belong here. Do they really love me like their own? And you, if, if you have any awareness of the depth of your own sin, you struggle at times with the assurance of God's love for you. Am I really part of God's family? Am I... Do I really belong? I know I'm naturally a child of wrath. Sadly, my remaining sin all too often reminds me of my natural father, who's an enemy of my adoptive father. I know I don't belong here with him. Does he really love me as his own? And he says, dear child, I have sent my own spirit into your very heart to drive all fear from your heart so that you can address me in the very same way as my son Jesus addresses me, as your Abba. Do you think I'm pleased with him? Do you think he belongs in my house? Dear one, you are united to him by faith. I see you as I see him. And you may call me what he calls me. I call you what I call him. That is unspeakable grace. And that is the doctrine of adoption. We come then to a final contrast. In adoption, we go from orphans to sons, enemies to brethren, Slavery to redemption, and number four, from being destitute to being heirs. From being destitute to being heirs. As spiritual orphans, we were spiritually 
destitute. It doesn't matter what trust fund you might have had. It doesn't matter what family line you come from. It doesn't matter what silver spoon was put in your mouth as a child like, like those who have no parents to care for them. In our natural sinful state, we had no promising prospects, no hope to look forward to, no plan that if we follow it, our future is set, no future, spiritually speaking. As I mentioned earlier from Hebrews 10.27, outside of Christ, the only thing we could expect was a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul describes our former lives as separate from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Because we are without Christ, we are without God. And because we are without God, we are without hope. Nothing to look forward to. Nothing to set our hope on. No future aside from eternal destruction. The definition of a dead end life. But because of the grace gift of our adoption, we have been given a hope. We have been given a future. We have been made heirs. And if we go back to Galatians 4, 7, Paul says, Therefore, because you are sons who cry, Abba, Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Romans 8, 17 says, and if we're children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, we have an inheritance, us, the nobodies, the non-people, those who had no hope. Now we look to the future with great anticipation and all confidence because we have the hope of eternal life. Listen to Titus 3, 7. Being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Our Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, an obtain, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then Hebrews 6.19 speaks of this hope and says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This hope is rock solid. You can anchor your soul on this hope. Friends, think of it. We are the heirs of our Father who rules the world. My daddy is greater than your daddy, right? Well, no, your daddy is my daddy, but you know how children boast with one another? My dad does this, my... Our dad rules the world. He owns everything. The earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. And we are then co-heirs with Christ. And what is Christ the heir of? Psalm 2.8, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Hebrews 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. And then, if your heart can handle it, Revelation 21 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. 
and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. And he who sits on the throne said, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And listen, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That is your future, Christian. That is your hope. You, without God, without hope in the world, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ of all things. Praise God for adoption. And what words of application can we close with? Well, first of all, if you are outside of Christ here this morning, if you, rem- if you remain a destitute spiritual orphan, enslaved to sin and an enemy of God, don't delay another moment to turn from your sin and your unbelief and put all your trust in Christ for your righteousness. It is a terrible wickedness to refuse a love so great as this, to sit in the hearing of grace and to spurn it. God will not hold you guiltless. Those who don't believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the only Son of God. No, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord for he will have compassion on him. And let him return to God for he will abundantly pardon. Come into the welcome, uh, welcoming arms of the King of the ages who is ready to be your Father. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ by faith alone this morning. And then a second word of application to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Worship God for the gospel of your adoption, friends. These are sweet morsels that we have feasted on this morning. These are delightful truths to be occupied with, are they not? Well, then be much in contemplation of the privileges and graces of your adoption. Think of yourselves this way. Think of yourselves as the children of God. Every morning, go before the throne of grace to which your Father welcomes you. And fortify yourself again in your identity as sons and daughters of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on you. Look into that love. Gaze upon it. And let the apprehensions of such extravagant grace outshine the luster of sin and temptation. Feast the appetites of your soul on the privileges of your adoption until you are satisfied, until there's no room for sin, until the sins that, promises, that promise you a false satisfaction look as repulsive as they are, until impatience and arrogance and anxious thoughts and impurity and complaining seem to be as ridiculous as they are for children of God to engage in. And let your heart return to pr- the, the praise to God that he is worthy of for being such a kind father. And then a third and final word of application. Love the children of God. Love the children of God. If you can return love to the father who has loved you so lavishly. Remember that 1 John 5, 1 says that whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. 
Friends, if you have been shown such extravagant grace by no less a benefactor than Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, can you bend out that grace to others in like manner? Can you bear the family name well? And imitate your loving father and and treat the people of God as your own family. That That may even be by adopting or fostering those children who are now no people. Who belong to no one. As the article in The Grace Today speaks about. If you're interested, you can look in in that article later today. But even if not, it certainly means maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It certainly means pouring out your life as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of Christ's people. It certainly means being difficult to offend and being easy to please and being quick to forgive. Be children of God and love the brethren. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our hearts are full. I pray that our hearts would be full with the returns of praise that are owed to such lavish grace. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell, and oh, how we feel that. If we could turn the whole sky into parchment and fill the ocean with ink, we could never write the love of God above. We feel that even now. And yet I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, seal the truths of this great blessing to the hearts of your people. And and give us, by the power of the Spirit of God, means to return unto you something of what you are worthy of. Not because we are so great, we are empty-handed, but that we would give of your own hand back to you. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty. From your own hand we have given to you. And so we, we pray for grace that we might return praise and worship. And that we might order our lives in such a way that befits children. If you address as Father, the one who judges each man's work impartially, conduct yourselves in fear as you live on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the imperishable, with the spotless blood or the blood of the spotless lamb of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the blood that washes me. I pray that you would confront your people with your goodness to them, Father, over and over and over, as quick and prone as we are to flee from it. I pray that you would seek us, as you are so faithful to do and fill our hearts with praise to you so that the the lusters of this world would not look so bright, so that the horrors would not look so dim, but that we see that this is our Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. And that though the wrong seems off so strong, 
you are the, the builder of this house just yet. You are the ruler of this world. Oh, what privileges. We pray that you would be honored in us and your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.